Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. When we are united, we can hasten the day as Dr. King proclaimed, when all of God's children will be able to walk the earth in decency and honor. The power of unity is exactly why those who stand in the way of equality and freedom seek to divide us. They appeal to the worst instincts of humanity, which often simmer just below the surface. I've seen it in my own work. As Borat, the first fake news journalist, I interviewed some college students, three young white men in their bowl caps and polo shirts. It only took a few drinks and soon they were telling me what they really believed. They asked if in my country women are slaves. They talked about here in the US, the Jews have the upper hand. When I asked, do you have slaves in America? They replied, we wish. We should have slaves, one said. It would be a better country. Those young men, they made a choice. They chose to believe some of the oldest and most vile lies that are the root of all hate. And so it pains me that we have to say them out loud again. The idea that people of color are inferior is a lie. The idea that Jews are dangerous and all powerful is a lie. The idea that women are not equal to men is a lie. And the idea that queer people are a threat to our children is a lie. January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News special report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. <laughs> professor Harvey K. My brother, he is a professor emeritus from the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. Every Tuesday, my friends, every Tuesday, you, me, Professor K, we take back America, reclaiming that radical, progressive, leftist history of America. Professor K, equal parts reunited for the first time. We got a chance, damn near three years in the making, but I made my pilgrimage to Green Bay, and we got a chance to see each other face to face. It was a beautiful thing, my brother. Absolutely. It was fabulous. I mean, you know, I had no doubt that at some point, either we would end up in Kansas City or you would end up here. Explain to people what brought you to Wisconsin. Got a last minute call from my buddy, our mutual buddy, Will Walters of our Wisconsin Revolution. He does some amazing work there. And don't forget, he's also on radio on the Civic Media Network here in Wisconsin. And we're putting together some content through Progressive Democrats of America, our mutual buddy, Alan Minsky. 
This is like a very incestuous conversation, as it turns out. <laughs> My buddy, Alan, who I introduced to you, and Alan then commissioned you and Will, who I also met when Alan met down at the Grassroots Network convention here in Wisconsin. But similarly, I brought John Shelton, my young colleague. Yes. He laughs when I call him my young colleague. He's in his early 40s. I brought John on the show and you guys became friendly. And then I did Will's show a couple of times. I said, oh, you got to have my friend John Shelton on. John Shelton is now doing Will's show every Thursday in that one hour slot that they do here in the Central Time from noon to one. The third line here is Professor K. So honestly, I have you to thank for this because I was in Wisconsin to cover the Republican presidential debate. So you know what? I have you to thank for me having to withstand that circus. I, I keep trying to think of ways to describe what it is that I saw, what I experienced. Harvey, I talked to the folks from Turning Points USA. It was it was an experience. They didn't and turn you to the right, did they? They kept me so far left that I don't even know <laughs> if I know what any other direction means anymore. <laughs> but you know what? I will say this. I had a great experience. It was one of those things you really can't turn down. You know, I drove 10 oh, hours yeah. and it didn't even matter, you know, um, right. but I did have some takeaways going back to the turning points thing. Their argument is so surface level. And if you go up to them and have a conversation and they know that they're not being recorded, because a lot of it's just all for show, you know, you might actually get a decent conversation. And we did. Will and I had a 15, 20 minute conversation with three of them. And the takeaways, most of this is just religious fundamentalism, you know, honestly, right off the bat. There's a lot of mommy issues. I don't want to just reduce it to a Freud thing, but honestly, Harvey, there's a lot of that going on. But I will say this. I don't think they've got the juice. But don't forget, they've got the dough. And that is why this is so close, because I really think that they're just cosplaying themselves at this point. This guy, I had a question that I asked him. I said, you know, what do you think is the biggest problem in America right now, materially? And he said, the radical left is getting in the way of us proclaiming the goodness of America. I'm paraphrasing. He said other flowery words. And so I said, well, hold on. If the left is getting in your way of doing this good work of, you know, pro-America, all that stuff, small government. He was just kind of reciting bullet points. I said, OK, so tell me, how did the left get in your way today? Like right now? Because aren't you doing what it is you're supposed to be hindered from doing? My fantasy of his answer is. We on the right, all across the right, shiver and quake knowing that you and Harvey K produce Take Back America episodes every week. That answer, Harvey, would have made so much more sense than the answer that I got. Because the answer that I got after I said, how is the left holding you back? He said, school boards. Like, Wait, hold on. <laughs> what are we talking about? And then I had the privilege of having you come up from Milwaukee to Green Bay the capital of, no offense to Kansas City, the <laughs> capital of great American football. I needed a palate cleanser after that, Harvey K. And that's what you and Lorna, it was so wonderful. Got a chance to stay in a room that has housed some pretty important people throughout the years. Yeah, that's the room where from 1985 through to when I stepped out of the university three years ago, 2020, about 150 guests came through speakers big and small and i don't mean size wise i mean celebrities as well as good young leftist people like yourself came through to speak at the university as part of the center for history and social change lecture series that i organized 
Somebody once said we should put a, uh, you know, like walk into a museum or a church or a synagogue and they've got the donor wall. Yes. And we should have a donor wall with all the people's names who slept there. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know if the room could handle something that big, actually. <laughs> As you saw, it's a small house, a small but welcoming house. I hope you found it to be. I gave you the full tour of Green Bay. So we went by the stadium, the university, the downtown down to De Pere, just south of Green Bay, to St. Norbert College as well. We stopped at Saruji's Chocolates. Yes, we did. Now, I have to tell everyone, I bought Hartzell <laughs> half a dozen chocolate bars to take home for him and Kitty, and he left them behind. He forgot them. <laughs> and then that evening, we went to dinner at Hinterland, the microbrewery and restaurant, part of the Titletown area next to Lambeau Field. And you bought yourself two beautiful little beer snifters, we'll call them that, and you forgot those here too. My so, wife was very generous. She quickly ran to the post office today and they're on their way to you. We couldn't send you the chocolate, as I told you earlier, because they would melt in the heat of Kansas right now. Actually, in Green Bay, they probably have melted too at various times. So you will either get some empty chocolate wrappers after we've eaten them. <laughs> Just kidding. Maybe by November, it'll be a good time. Maybe around Halloween time, I'll try to send you some chocolate. Well, we were scheming and plotting, and I think I will be making another trip up there very, very soon. Hopefully sooner rather than later. Excellent. Very good. Very good. Plus, while you were here, you got to meet John Shelton. We stopped by the university. John happened to be working in his office, which I thought was a 50-50 chance. We had a chance to talk. And then that night after dinner, he came over the house and we drank, let's say we drank champagne and whiskey i think both yeah shame <laughs> <It> on us <laughs> it was so much fun i had thought about taking you to the university because that's where i spent so many of my you know i spent 42 to three years i still have my office where a lot of my books are sitting but i just figured it would be quiet and i could drive you by there was no need to go in going in was the part that i hadn't necessarily planned and because we did go in we got a chance to see john shelton i'm telling yep. you serendipity is a beautiful beautiful thing yep so let's go ahead and let these folks know what we are talking about today. Full disclosure, we're recording this last night, Monday evening, which is the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. A lot of folks want you to forget about that last part. August 28th, 1963. So we're going to go a little bit back and forth through time if we right. can on this one. So as we look back into that monumental occasion, I believe you have us kicking off with some words from the here and now. Yes. And in fact, uh, just so, to let people know, Hartzell and I are no less interested in football this week than we are any week. But given the big trip he made here and Kitty's birthday at the end of the week last week and the party and the games that you had to cover for soccer on Saturday, basically Hartzell slept away the rest of the weekend. So football <laughs> is not on the agenda today, even though I could talk on and on about the Green Bay Packers. Having said that, let's go back in time to the 1963 March on Washington for jobs and freedom. In order not to just ramble on, I, I think it'd be a good idea for me, for us, to read the message that our friend, presidential candidate Marianne Williamson, issued today in commemoration of that march. And the reason her remarks are so good is that they pay full attention to not merely the imperative question that motivates a march on Washington of fighting racism, pursuing civil rights and voting rights, but as well the larger, if you like, or fuller economic question of jobs and 
economic equality, and eventually the question of, of course, economic rights. So let's read to people what she had to say, because it's a good summation of the things that I would talk about, but I'd end up in a long discourse if I began <laughs> to do that. So how about if we begin with her remarks? Today, she says, is the 60th anniversary of the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. The march, where Dr. Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech, is widely known as the culmination of the civil rights movement, and it precipitated the 1964 Civil Rights Act and 1965 Voting Rights Act. We should celebrate not only the genius and achievement of Dr. King and a former generation, but also dedicate ourselves to the still unfinished work. We all know this important story very well, so I want to talk about a crucial aspect of the story that is rarely discussed. The march was organized by Democratic Socialists, civil rights leaders, A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin. And after winning civil rights and voting rights legislation, Rustin, Randolph and Dr. King shifted to a new set of demands, the Freedom Budget for All Americans. Its goal was the abolition of poverty, guaranteed full employment, fair prices for farmers, fair wages for workers, housing and health care for all, the establishment of progressive tax and fiscal policies that respected the needs of working families. And I should just point out before we continue, that freedom budget for all Americans, which I think we've referred to before in the show, and if we haven't, this is a good time to do it, was actually inspired not only by Randolph's own labor and civil rights activism for so many years, going back into the 1920s, all the more, if you like, dynamically in the 1930s, but also his hearing and his embrace and his never forgetting FDR's Four Freedom Speech of 1941, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear, but also FDR's 1944, maybe even more so, FDR's 1944 speech, State of the Union speech, in which FDR called for an economic bill of rights. If I could show you, and I unfortunately we don't have video on this one, well, actually we got to get video someday, Hartzell, obviously. Yeah, we do. We've got it. If I showed you the freedom budget brochure, the booklet, I should say, that Randolph issued, you would see that this is decidedly in pursuit of creating what FDR had in mind for of an economic bill of rights for all Americans. Marianne continues and says, Randolph called for the full and final triumph of the civil rights movement to be achieved by going beyond civil rights, linking the goal of racial justice with the goal of economic justice for all people in the United States, and doing so by rallying massive segments of the 99% of the American people in a powerfully democratic and moral crusade. Those were Randolph's words, I should make clear. Rustin felt that a program of racial equality had to be so intertwined these are his words, with progressive economic and social policies as to make it impossible to choose one without the other. So there we begin, not in the present, but in the 1960s. But in order to fully appreciate how it came to that in the 60s, we ought to go back. We should go back to the 1930s, but maybe more pointedly to 1941. A. Philip Randolph was the head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. The folks, the men who basically serviced the passengers on the overnight Pullman cart on the trains. Well, the restaurant cars and the sleeping cars. These were the guys, I guess in other moments, they'd be called porters. Randolph, on hearing FDR's 
State of the Union message of 1941, hearing FDR call for, if not call for, I should say, projecting a vision of America after the war, America and the world after the war. The U.S. is not yet in the war, but the war is raging in Europe and East Asia. He called for the four freedoms, which I mentioned before, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. When he heard those words, Randall figured now was the time to strike. Now is the time to call for the desegregation of the defense industries that would soon become the war industries and the desegregation of the military. And he organized, he announced the creation of a March on Washington movement. I guess the time he did so was like February of 41, with the idea that this march would take place in early summer in Washington, D.C., now, the thing is that it wasn't like he made an announcement and expected people to, to swarm to it. By the way, he was very clear about it. This march would only include African-Americans. That is, African-Americans should be at the forefront of liberating themselves. Basically, he directed these, I don't know the exact number, but all of these sleeping car porter union members, as they travel the country, wherever they get off, if they are free for the afternoon or maybe for a couple of days off, whatever it might be, they should make contact with local black fraternities and sororities and black churches. And if there was an NAACP chapter, basically announce to them that the time has come to organize and try to mobilize in a way as to be able to send people by bus or train to Washington to take part in this march. Randolph was projecting a possible 10,000 marchers in D.C. What happened was that in the meantime, Randolph himself organized. I think there were smaller marches, maybe in Chicago. I may be right or wrong. I don't know. Maybe one in St. Louis, but there were smaller marches. They were sizable turnouts, but they were not national marches yet. To get the story going, Roosevelt, of course, knew this was coming and he was worried. He wasn't worried about the marchers. He was worried about the fact that DC was a segregated city. Maybe he didn't trust the police not to beat the shit out of marchers or at least the white residents of DC to try to do so. So he sent Eleanor to meet with a Philip Randolph, and she tried to persuade him, or at least the story goes, she tried to persuade him not to bring the marchers to D.C. Well, she couldn't persuade him. So FDR figured, well, I'll bring him into the White House. He'd already been in the White House. FDR said, I'll bring him in the White House. I'll use my schmoozing talents to dissuade him. That's the way the story is told. Well, Randolph came accompanied by one or more black leaders, in particular, Walter White, who was head of the NAACP, and they were sitting in the office, and eventually they got to the subject of the march, and Roosevelt basically was compelled to ask, how many marchers are you planning to bring? And Randolph said, remember, FDR is expecting to hear the number 10,000, Randolph said, 100,000. I mean, FDR probably sat back in his chair and thought, uh-oh, and figured, I got to do something. To make the long story short of what happened in the office, FDR agreed to sign two executive orders. One executive order was to order the defense industries, the companies that had defense contracts, to desegregate. The second one, because Randolph and White said, well, how are you going to guarantee that? They created the FEPC, the Fair Employment Practice Commission. But the idea that that commission would oversee these contracts and the degree to which these companies were employing blacks beyond giving them jobs as you know, floor sweepers. It also meant that they couldn't discriminate based on religion either, which was important. When they went to FDR's office, they had already dropped the idea of desegregating the military. They thought that would be an impossibility. The point was to make sure that African-Americans had an equal right to participate in the military, though it would be a segregated 
military. What they did, however, agree to do in, in that office was not to bring the marchers to Washington. Now, this is important. Randolph did not, he didn't for a moment doubt that he would get what he wanted. He either said or wrote that to someone afterward. Randolph imagined, he assumed, in fact, that he would get his goal, that FDR would do what was needed. What he was doing was exactly what FDR always said, that he was prepared to take progressive, if not radical actions, but he had to be pushed to do it. Not because he wouldn't do it otherwise, but because he had to be able to tell Congress, hey, I had no choice. But Randolph didn't dismantle the March on Washington organization. And throughout the war, whenever it seemed that blacks were not getting fair, well, relatively speaking, in an age of segregation and Jim Crow, that they were not getting fair treatment by the codes established governing the war effort, he would challenge the administration to do something about it. And often the administration did. Then, of course, the war came to an end and FDR passed away in 45, close to the very end of the war in April 45. Randolph still did not dismantle the organization. Why? Because he wanted to make sure things did not go back in time, that things didn't get worse again. Well, in fact, they did get worse. There was a great deal of violence as black veterans came back to the South. White racists were worried, hey, these black soldiers learned how to shoot. And these black soldiers, when they came back, because they had had opportunities to vote overseas, they came back to organize voting drives in the South. Well, there were lynchings, there were murders, and so on. So Randolph began to mobilize again. He was going to push for some kinds of federal action. And for what it's worth, Harry Truman did respond. For all of Truman's faults and failings, as many of these presidents have, he did respond. Truman actually became an advocate for equal rights for African Americans. I'm now reading from my book, The Fight for the Four Freedoms. In December 1946, he responded to the mounting racial violence down south by creating the President's Committee on Civil Rights, the PCCR, and requesting of its members that they not only study the question, but also recommend serious action to address it. In June 1947, he became the first president ever to speak to the NAACP convention, and he did so at the Lincoln Memorial. And in doing so, he highlighted FDR's Four Freedoms and told the assembled delegates that when he, meaning he, Truman, referred to the rights of Americans, he meant all Americans. And in October of 47, he released the final report titled To Secure These Rights, which cited the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and the Four Freedoms, not only forcefully condemned segregation, but also set the agenda for the post-war civil rights movement by advancing a host of legislative and other initiatives to guarantee, in quotes, safety and security, citizenship and its privileges, freedom of conscience and expression, and equality of opportunity to all Americans. Now, this didn't happen, of course, in full, in any grand scale until 1964 and 65. But the point is that it began to happen in the states. There were states that began to pass civil rights laws and to take action. Now, keep in mind, Randolph was pressing Truman responded. And now, Hartzell, how about if you read that next paragraph in the Four Freedoms book, because this will take us to a really important development. Truman did not stop there. In February 1948, he sent Congress a special message on civil rights, proposing a permanent FEPC, or Fair Employment Practice Commission, and anti-lynching law, and a federal guarantee of the right to vote. Then in July, he called Congress into special session to address the civil rights question. And when Congress convened, but did nothing, he acted. 
Responding to continuing black pressure and a threat by A. Philip Randolph that he would urge young men to resist the draft if the U.S. military was not desegregated, Truman issued two executive orders. The first established new non-discriminatory rules for federal employment, and the second commanded the integration of the armed forces. That's important to realize. This is Randolph's pressure with the March on Washington movement energies behind him. That is the ground decades before the 1960s. That's the basis that ultimately comes back into play as the March on Washington movement in 1963. So when we come back to the 1960s, realizing that Randolph had launched the March on Washington movement back in 1941, and that it played an important role in advancing the question of racial justice from 41 right through the late 40s, and of course, set an example to other black and civil rights groups to push, to push, to push. Change did occur. Don't forget, 1954, Brown v. Board of Education, the declaration by the Supreme Court that segregation in schools was unconstitutional. Now, the change didn't come for a while, but the decision had been made. Now we're in 1960s, Randolph recruits Rustin to do what? To organize the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. It's important, jobs and freedom. Hartzell and I are going to do one of our great recitations, or at least an effort at a great recitation, of A. Philip Randolph's, as the Jacobin magazine titled it, Radical Stirring Speech at the 1963 March on Washington. Now, I just want to note, we have always decided that we would not read or recite King's speech here. We've chosen this one tonight because we want to highlight Randolph's role in all of this, okay? Not to discount Rustin. As you'll see, the outro, as it's called, is going to be Rustin reading the demands of the March on Washington to be delivered to the White House and to mobilize Americans in favor of civil justice, racial justice, economic justice, and so on. As Jacobin Magazine writes to introduce this speech, the official head of the August 28, 1963 March on Washington was Socialist A. Philip Randolph. In his speech, reprinted here, he called for restructuring society so, in quotes, the sanctity of private property takes second place to the sanctity of the human personality. We've gathered here for the largest demonstration in the history of this nation. Let the nation and the world know the meaning of our numbers. We are not a pressure group. We are not an organization or a group of organizations. We are not a mob. We are the advance guard of a massive moral revolution for jobs and freedom. This revolution reverberates throughout the land, touching every city, every town, every village where black men are segregated, oppressed, and exploited. But this civil rights revolution is not confined to the Negro, nor is it confined to civil rights. For our white allies know that they cannot be free while we are not. And we know that we have no future in a society in which six million black and white people are unemployed and millions more live in poverty. Nor is the goal of our civil rights revolution merely the passage of civil rights legislation. Yes, we want all public accommodations open to all citizens. But those accommodations will mean little to those who cannot afford to use them. Yes, we want a Fair Employment Practice Act 
But what good will it do if profit-geared automation destroys the jobs of millions of workers, black and white? We want integrated public schools, but that means we also want federal aid to education, all forms of education. We want a free, democratic society dedicated to the political, economic, and social advancement of men along moral lines. Now, we know that real freedom will require many changes in this nation's political and social philosophies and institutions. For one thing, we must destroy the notion that Mrs. Murphy's property rights include the right to humiliate me because of the color of my skin. The sanctity of private property takes second place to the sanctity of the human personality. It falls to the Negro to reassert this proper priority of values because our ancestors were transformed from human personalities into private property. It falls to us to demand new forms of social planning, to create full employment, and to put automation at the service of human needs, not at the service of profits. For we are the worst victims of unemployment. Negroes are at the forefront of today's movement for social and racial justice, because we know we cannot expect the realization of our aspirations through the same old anti-democratic social institutions and philosophies that have all along frustrated our aspirations. And so we've taken our struggle into the streets as the labor movement took its struggle into the streets as Jesus Christ led the multitude through the streets of Judea. The plain and simple fact is that until we went into the streets, the federal government was indifferent to our demands. It was not until the streets and jails of Birmingham were filled that Congress began to think about civil rights legislation. It was not until thousands demonstrated in the South that lunch counters and other public accommodations were integrated. It was not until the Freedom Riders were brutalized in Alabama that the 1946 Supreme Court decision banning discrimination in interstate travel was enforced. And it was not until construction sites were picketed in the North that Negro workers were hired. Those who deplore our militants, who exhort patience in the name of a false peace, are in fact supporting segregation and exploitation. They would have social peace at the expense of social and racial justice. They are more concerned with easing racial tension than enforcing racial democracy. The months and years ahead will bring new evidence of masses in motion for freedom. The March on Washington is not the climax of our struggle, but a new beginning, not only for the Negro, but for all Americans who thirst for freedom and a better life. Look for the enemies of Medicare, of higher minimum wages, of Social Security, of federal aid to education, and there you will find the enemy of the Negro. The coalition of Dixiecrats and reactionary Republicans that seek to dominate the Congress. We must develop strength in order that we may be able to back and support the civil rights program of President Kennedy. And the struggle against these forces, all of us should be prepared to take to the streets. The spirit and techniques that built the labor movement, founded churches, and now guide the civil rights revolution must be a massive crusade, must be launched against the unholy coalition of Dixiecrats and of the racists that seek to strangle Congress. We here today are only the first wave. When we leave, it will be to carry on the civil rights revolution home with us into every nook and cranny of the land. 
and we shall return again and again to Washington in ever-growing numbers until total freedom is ours. We shall settle for nothing less, and may God grant that we may have the courage, the strength, and the faith in this hour of trial by fire never to falter. And for the record, A. Philip Randolph was born in 1889, and he passed away in 1979, and he was a labor unionist and civil rights leader. The importance of all of this, Professor Harvey K., because, you know, as I was looking today on the MSNBCs of the world and the CNNs, the cable news media, right? We all heard Dr. Martin Luther King's speech. We would never dismiss that, as you said earlier, but, you know, I think... As we do begin to put together that progressive playbook, we've got to make sure we know all the personalities that are in this playbook. The A. Philip Randolphs, the Bayard Rustins, the Walter Ruthers, all of those folks helped us get here, helped us fund how we got here back in those times as well. And also, you know, the, the Fannie Lou Hamers, as Professor John Shelton reminds us. Those personalities that so often get shoved into the side pages of history because it doesn't quite meet the platitudes that are marketable in the stores. You know what I mean, Professor K. I do. You know, it actually was a remarkable event, the March on Washington. Really was. You've got Randolph is like the godfather to the entire event and the leader of the event. Baird Rustin played the role of organizer. And when they needed to make sure that people could get to Washington, Walter Ruther and the UAW, who had basically underwritten a series of progressive initiatives and movements in the early 60s, stepped forward and they underwrote and paid for the buses that helped bring a quarter of a million Americans in all their diversity, mostly African-Americans, plenty of whites, and surely every diversity imaginable. The only thing I should correct us on is the fact that this was an overwhelmingly male platform, mm -hmm. okay? And it would take time for African-American and white women to get their place in those kinds of platforms. Not too many years, though, as I look back now. You know, Randolph's speech, even I, until we read it aloud tonight, did not quite grasp the radicalism in it mm -hmm. until now. It really was a, a great speech. It's a shame it doesn't get more attention. The media likes to focus on one event, one person, one speech, right? They can't handle diverse voices. In this case, it would have been diverse only to the extent that Randolph really was a labor unionist and civil rights leader. King believed firmly in the radical possibilities of a, an alliance between the civil rights movement and the labor movement. And let's not forget that, yes, all too many unions were themselves discriminating against African-Americans. It is also the case that there were integrated unions for decades, ever since the 1930s, especially the CIO unions. So this, this was a major event. Now, the curious thing or ironic thing or tragic thing, whatever you want to look at it, is that after the march, hopes were raised, but it didn't actually create the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts by itself. Kennedy was always rather reserved about civil rights. He had been moved, basically, in 1963 to speak out and to pursue the possibility of the Civil Rights Act that's referred to in that speech. But it was his assassination that then brought Johnson to the White House. And the irony is that this Southern Democrat is the man who then, in a sort of essentially a pact with King, produces 
legislation in Congress for civil rights in 64 and for voting rights in 65, and then later for fair housing. Now, the struggle continues, absolutely continues, but we ought to remember these men and women and these kinds of words because they can help inspire us. And that's why this stuff is important, because we have to take back our history as we take back America. Professor K, take hold of that history. When we close, you will hear Baird Rustin, the organizer of the March on Washington in 63, read aloud the demands of the movement. And then a Philip Randolph calling on the quarter of a million folks who are there to make a pledge to advance that set of demands. There you go. On that, Professor K, where can folks find you on the internet? On Twitter, Harvey J.K., H-A-R-V-E-Y, initial J-K-A-Y-E. Notice how I still say Twitter. I refuse to acknowledge the X. If anything, I might say the uh, the website formerly known as Twitter. Oh, good work. Good work. Okay, well, that's what it is. Harvey J.K. on Twitter. You can get me at Hartzell965. Get The Morning Show at KC Morning Show on Twitter and The KC Morning Show on Instagram. My brother, I love that. And no one can see this. We have to get video. We're going to have to get video soon. But I just love that. As I walked up those stairs just a few days ago, it's nice to know exactly the Zoom background I'm looking at. feels like I've been in your room with you now for almost three years. Is that weird to say? (laughs) (laughs) Nope. I think that's great. Absolutely great. Hartzell did let me know that he's going to be posting on Twitter tomorrow Mm -hmm. some photos of his journey and his visit to Green Bay and our home. And I look forward to seeing them. They'll also see that new cap I just got. Uh Aha. I gave you a choice of two. I hope you like the one you got. I love it. And for the record, I'll say it now because, you know, Aaron Rodgers is gone. I actually can fully embrace a go pack go mentality. <laughs> they don't even say Rodgers. They say the guy who used to be the quarterback. Just like Twitter, the app that used to be Twitter. <laughs> yeah, right. My brother, I love you. I will see you next week. Let's hit play on this speech. A philosopher of a nonviolent system of behavior in seeking to bring about social change for the advancement of justice and freedom and human dignity. I want to introduce now Brother Bayard Rustin, who will read the demands of the March on Washington movement. Everyone must listen to these demands. This is why we are here. And now, Bayard Rustin. Deputy Director of the March will read the demand. Friends, at five o'clock today, the leaders whom you have heard will go to President Kennedy to carry the demands of this revolution. It is now time for you to act. I will read each demand and you will respond to it so that when Mr. Wilkins and Dr. King and the other eight leaders go, they are carrying with them the demands which you have given your approval to. The first demand is that we have effective civil rights legislation, no compromise, no filibuster, 
and that it include public accommodations, decent housing, integrated education, FEPC, and the right to vote. What do you say? They want that we demand the withholding of federal funds from all programs in which discrimination exists. What do you say? We demand that segregation be ended in every school district in the year 1963. of the 14th Amendment, the reducing of congressional representation of states where citizens are disenfranchised. We demand an executive order banning discrimination in all housing supported by federal funds. that every person in this nation, black or white, be given training and work with dignity to defeat unemployment and automation. We demand that there be an increase in the national minimum wage so that men may live in dignity. We finally demand that all of the rights that are given to any citizen be given to black men and men of every minority group, including a strong FEPC. We demand... Mr. Randolph will read the pledge. This is a pledge which says, our job has just begun. You pledge to return home to carry on the revolution. After Mr. Randolph has read the pledge, I will say, do you so pledge? And you will say, I do pledge. The pledge. Will you stand? Standing before the Lincoln Memorial on the 28th of August, in the centennial year of emancipation, I affirm my complete personal commitment to the struggle for jobs and freedom for Americans. To fulfill that commitment, I pledge that I will not relax until victory is won. I pledge that I will join and support all actions undertaken in good faith in accord with the time-honored democratic tradition of non-violent protest, of peaceful assembly and petition, and of redress through the courts and the legislative process.
I pledge to carry the message of the march to my friends and neighbors back home and arouse them to an equal commitment and equal effort. I will march and I will write letters. I will demonstrate and I will vote. I will work to make sure that my voice and those of my brothers ring clear and determined from every corner of our land. I pledge my heart and my mind and my body unequivocally and without regard to personal sacrifice to the achievement of social peace through social justice. How do you pledge? I... Show. Yeah. 